Take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of Hosea. If you should have found it by now, if you were lost, we're in the book of Hosea. I was thinking today that the sermon in a series I'm doing on 1 Corinthians was in chapter 14 in the misuse of tongues. I didn't think that was real appropriate today for Father's Day and for all these baby dedications as well. So I thought I'd switch to something else. And I was thinking about what would be appropriate for this particular occasion. I thought of the book of Hosea. Now Hosea is not a book that is idyllic. It's not a hallmark type of book. Uh, it's, uh, but it has wonderful portrayals that I want to look at with you for a moment. And first of all, the Lord himself is portrayed as a loving, uh, delivering God, a, a healing God. Uh, the people of Israel are portrayed as a silly, uh, sinful, rebellious people. And then the heart of God is exposed in the chapter 11. We'll look at it at the end. A heart of love for his children. So I want to look at this with you today and begin to look by starting with looking at the portrait of God himself as a loving parent. The, 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 uh, the book, go back to chapter 11 for a moment. The book of Hosea is just filled with metaphors. Of all Metaphors are found throughout the Bible. They're, they're word pictures that, that give us a fuller picture of uh, the things of God or God himself or whatever that, uh, than with simply words. These, uh, these metaphors are, are powerful, and, and Hosea is just filled with them. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. So we start off with the fact that the Lord is a loving parent. I'm going to come back to this chapter so I want to move on, but I just want to show you, first of all, he's depicted as one who loves his people. In chapter 11, verse 3, he's depicted as a doctor. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by, in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Uh, he's a physician to them. He's a healer of them and of all those who need to know him. The problem with this uh, particular group of people is they didn't know they needed to be healed. And if you don't know that you're sick... If you don't know that you need to be healed, you're not likely to look for any kind of healing. In verse 2, he says this, The more I called them, the more they went away from them. And, and Harold did a good job by pointing out this was the prophets. The more the prophets called them to God, the more they ran away from God. They didn't see any need for, for any kind of healing whatsoever. I knew a lady a number of years ago who, who was obviously dying. Her, her health was obviously deteriorating day by day. But she would not believe she was sick and she wouldn't go to a doctor. And of course she died prematurely because she re refused to believe that she was actually sick. That's the problem with the people of Israel here. They refused to recognize their own spiritual illness. And as a result of that, it continued right on down the hill, spiritually speaking. But I want to drop back to chapter 14, verse 4. Even though they are people that do not recognize their need for healing, the Lord is going to give them healing anyway. In 14.4 it says this, I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. So we end up in chapter 14 with the healing that God brings. Chapter 5 verse 12, we have a third picture or metaphor of God. Chapter 5 verse 12, and that is of a, of a moth. It says here, therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim. And Ephraim, by the way, is another term for Israel. I am like a moth to Ephraim. I am like rottenness to the house of Judah. Uh, we don't, when we think of a, of a mighty animal or critter, we don't think of a moth, do we? Uh, I, never, I don't know of any athletic team that calls themselves the mighty rock moths. That'd be like calling yourself a pretzel or something like that, you know? Uh, 
I'm not sure our pretzels are here today, so that may have fell flat. But anyway, uh, but moths do their work, don't they? Uh, they're, they're working behind the scenes. They're working slowly. You don't even know they're there. I, I've showed you what, some years ago. I think Marsha threw it away. But I, have, I had a letter sweater from my wrestling days back in high school that I pulled out some years ago for some party we were having here. And I took it out, and it was just absolutely riddled with holes. All the way through, is riddled with holes from, from moths. I didn't know it, but it had done a, a job of destruction. There's rottenness here, too. And you, you sometimes pull away maybe something from the side of your house, and you find that termites have been there, or rottenness has been there, and deterioration is taking place. And so we have a, a, the times when the Lord works slowly behind the scenes, but he's working like a moth in, in order to draw them to himself. But other times he's working very actively. And very, very outwardly. And so we find that in verse 14 of chapter 5, where he says this concerning himself, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. A lion will attack. And so there's times when the Lord's, Lord's judgment was very direct, very powerful, very much out there. Other times he was working slowly, but he was always at work. He was always bringing them about to heal them. In chapter 5, verse 15, he says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. So the Lord is at work in Israel. He is going to heal them in due time when they meet the conditions. But he is at work. He's not given up on them. So here we, here's where our first point. We have a picture of God. We have a picture of the Father as a loving Father. We have a picture of him as a compassionate healer. We have a picture of him of constantly at work to bring his people back to himself. Then we turn to Israel itself, and we have, going back to chapter 6, verse 4, we have a number of metaphors describing the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. And we start with the morning dew, chapter 6, verse 4. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Uh, dew happens, and then it is gone quickly. It doesn't last. It doesn't hang around. It, it moves out very quickly. And this is kind of reminds me of their emotions. Their, their emotions were up and down. As we read the history of Israel, we find brief, brief snatches in which they're walking with God and they're excited about serving Him. And the next thing we know, they're right back to their apostasy and their idolatry. They're up and down. They, can't, they're not, they don't have any lasting features. They're like a cake not turned. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has been, become a cake not turned. I kind of picture this as like a pancake. You know, you're, on the one side, it's getting burnt to a crisp. The other side is still all doughy. You ever, ever cook like that? I, I do quite often, you know. It, and it, it's useless, dough, useless pancake on that. The, the people here were, uh, on the one hand, they were chasing after the idols and the lifestyle of the pagans around them. They, were, they gravitated towards those things. They wouldn't separate themselves from those people and their sinfulness. On the other hand, they wanted to follow the rituals of God. They, they wanted to go to church. They wanted to, to be somewhat religious according to the, to the teachings of God in Israel. But they never dedicated themselves to Him. And that's why as we had a baby dedication today. It's not half-hearted dedication. It should be full-hearted dedication. Otherwise, we're like a pancake that's never been turned over. Completely and utterly useless. And then we find going down to verse 9 that, that they're like gray hair. Strangers devour their strength yet he doesn't know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on them yet he doesn't know it. Now many of you probably remember the first day you saw your first gray hair. 
some of you looked at that gray hair and you, you shouted out in, in pain and agony. Uh, and you probably pulled that hair out. And then uh, five more came up the next day. Uh, why do people get excited about a gray hair? There's nothing ugly about a gray hair. Why would people get excited about that? Because it is a sign that we're not going to be young forever. That we are going to grow older. And as we grow older, we will, will eventually will be uh, in, you know, physically not able to do things we used to do. We'll be feeble and eventually we're going to die. And gray hair is kind of a sign. You know, we're getting there. Maybe it's a long ways off, but we're getting there. But Israel, it says, doesn't know they have gray hair. They look in the mirror and say, we don't have any. We're not deteriorating. We're not, we're not weak. We're not, nothing's ever going to come to an end for us. We're just going to keep right on going. But, and the reason they did that is verse 11. They're like silly doves. Verse 11 says, oh, Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. A silly dove. Think about that. Doves are pretty silly. And this is a silly dove on top of that. These people are, are senseless. I'm reading a book right now uh, that the thesis of the book is that anybody that does not follow God is insane. Because they're not following reality. The reality is the world that the Lord has placed into action. is a universe that he has created and that he runs. That's reality. And he tells us how to live in reality. He tells us how to live in this world he has created. And anyone who chooses not to follow that reality is in some form of insanity. They've chosen to be insane because they're, they're bucking God himself who created the universe. And so it's the, the idea of the book is bringing us back to, to our senses. And then they're a deceitful bowl. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. Now, they turn but not upward. They're like a de- deceitful bowl. If you have a, a crooked or deceitful bow, you're, when you shoot the arrow, it could go anywhere. But it doesn't go to the target. So they're making efforts, but they're not hitting the target that God wants them to hit. Chapter 10, verse 1, they're like a luxuriant, luxuriant vine. Israel is like a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. This one really hits home for America right now. Uh, when this was being written, uh, Jeroboam II was on the throne of Israel. And he was, uh, he was a bad king spiritually, but he was a good king economically. And the country was at its zenith financially and economically. And so they had many things. They were very wealthy. They were doing very well. But they used their wealth to make themselves more ungodly. Do we have a picture here of America or what? No country in the world has ever been blessed like America economically. Our resources are like no other country has ever had. And yet we find ourselves rapidly deteriorating day by day, week by week, year by year into sin. We take the blessings of God and we allow those things not to, be, not to take us to praise God and thank Him for what He's done, but we allow those things to take us down spiritually and, and trust in ourselves. And that's what Israel was doing. In chapter 10, verse 11, said they were like a trained heifer. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thrash. I, I'm not sure what a trained heifer would look like, but apparently it's a heifer that you train. But this one is out of control. It likes to thrash. It likes to kick you. It likes to cause damage. And they're like that kind of a trained heifer. Uh, until now, Israel had had all the freedoms that they wanted in, in this land, but it was coming to an end. Ultimately, sin robs us of our freedom. Most of you have heard of Frederick Nietzsche. 
uh, if you haven't, you heard of his great slogan that God is dead. Now Nietzsche actually believed we killed God. That there was a God, but we killed him. And we killed him because we didn't need him. Matter of fact, God was in the way. Now most people wouldn't say that out loud, but Nietzsche did. And most people live like God is unnecessary. And so, what, and so he said that, and he taught a lot of people that God is dead. But you know what? God is not dead, but Nietzsche is. Uh, Nietzsche's been dead for a long time. And he, as he came close to death, he, he himself went insane because of syphilis, because of an immoral lifestyle, because he thought he could buck the system of God that says, here's how you are to live, and here's the consequences if you don't. And therefore, he is a man who lived out his freedom but his freedom led him to destruction. That's what Israel's facing right now. They think they're free to do whatever they want to do, but sin never leaves us free. Sin always puts us in bondage. Sin always puts us in bondage. And Israel didn't recognize that. Chapter 13, verse 3, we have one final metaphor I'll bring you away, and that is of, of smoke and chaff. Therefore, they'll be like the morning cloud, like dew, which soon disappears, like chaff, which is blown away from the threshing floor like smoke from a chimney. That's a good summary of these people. Smoke and chaff are virtually useless and they soon disappear. And so this is the picture of Israel. Not a very pretty picture, is it? Now here's the question. We've seen so far the portrait of the loving, uh, healing God who comes after us and wants us to follow him. We've seen a portrait of a, of a silly people who have decided they'll live their own way and ignore the God who, who had rescued them and brought them to the promised land. They're silly, they're restless, they're rebellious, they're useless. Now here's my question for you today. How did they get there? And I want you to go back to Deuteronomy with me for a moment and we'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We're in chapter 6 a while ago. I'm going to stop off at chapter 11. We always turn to chapter 6, and we should, but chapter 10 and chapter 11 say basically the same thing. And I want to read a few verses in chapter 11. Remember, Deuteronomy was written by Moses just prior to the people going into the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. Uh, finally, they were ready to go into the land, and Moses is giving them a final set of messages to prepare them to go into the land. And he says in verse 18, you shall, or chapter 11, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons. Now listen to this. You shall teach them to your sons. Talking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the, way, along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons will be multiplied in the land. Notice that final promise, longevity in the promised land, which you're now losing. 700 years approximately later, we're in the book of Hosea. Hosea is the last prophet to preach to the people of Israel before they go into exile. 700 years later, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that they have been deteriorating over and over and over throughout the centuries. Every once in a while, having a blip up, but for the most part, they're in a downward trajectory in descent. What happened? Now, I want, to get the, I want to say this very, very clearly to every parent, every grandparent, every person in this room. 
they did not do what God told them to do. God told them that you must teach your children the things of, of Him. You must do it as you walk along the way, as you put them to bed at night, as you're sitting at the meal table, as you're living life, as you're working in the fields, every aspect of life, the Lord should be and His instructions on your lips. As again, as I said earlier, we do not raise children for the Lord accidentally. Is intentional. And God called them to an intentionality of raising their children for Him. And they did not do that. They did not do that. For about 40 years, under Joshua, they did pretty well. But the next 40 years in the judges was awful. And it never got a whole lot better after that except for brief periods. And so we're called to do something. They were called to do something they did not do. And therefore, 700 years later, we're at Hosea. And we're watching the people deteriorate and go downhill and pay the consequences of their sins. But Hosea shows us not only the consequences of sin, and not only the need, uh, uh, what sin does when we break his commandments, it also shows us one more picture that I want to conclude with today in chapter 11, and that is the heart of God. The heart of God. What is the heart of God like as he looks at a people who are not walking with him, his children who are not walking with him. We, we see this picture here. There, there's a picture here in chapter 11, and it's like nothing else in scripture. The heart of God is exposed for the loving father who is being uh, jilted by his own people. And we have a passage here that just touches our heart in, in every possible way. We see an analogy of the tenderness of God, the picture of, of divine love. What does the heart of God look like when we're seeing people walk away from him? I think there's a possibility, I don't know this is right, but I think there's a good possibility that this is the Old Testament counterpart to, to Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. We all know the prodigal son's story as the son leaves home and wastes his life and, and lives for all these things and ruins himself. Uh, the father is waiting back home for him. I kind of think that perhaps Jesus had this passage in mind when he gave that picture. This picture here shows us the heart of the father as he sat at home waiting for his son to hopefully one day come back. And if that's the case, and even if it's not, take a look at the heart of God with me. Verse 1, he says this, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I, I picture this as as God looking into the crib of baby Israel. The son is born. He's looking into that little crib with like all these babies we had up here today and many others. And that baby was, is born. And then he looks into that crib. As one father told me one time, at, at, as soon as they saw that little baby, the first moment, he said it was instant love. Isn't that the case when you have that little one? Instant love. Your life is forever changed. So the Lord is looking into that crib at that little one. Verse 2, the more, they, uh, the more they called them, the more they went away from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to the idols. The little son, little Israel, was a rebellious tot. As he grew up, he, he did not want to follow instructions. He did not want to do that which he was called to do by the father. Yet the father continued to love him. Look at verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk I took him in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. 
I became to them as one who lifts up the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. Get the picture of a father here, or a mother, who's tenderly taking care of this little one that cannot take care of himself. The child is in rebellion. It does not want to follow the dictates of the father or mother, and yet we find that as the Lord looks at them, I'm the one that taught them to walk. I tucked them in my arms when they were sick, and I healed them. I, I led them with bonds of love all the way through their youth as they were growing up. Going on down a little further to verse 7. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the hot one on high, none of them, none at all exalts him. Nevertheless, all that the Father had done, they, they spurned. They were bent on turning from the Father. We're talking about God here. They were bent on, to, on not following him. Still, he will not give up. Verse 8, he says, how, and now catch the heart of God here. Now how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Drop on down. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. We have here the father as he concentrates on his son. How can I give up? If this is the prodigal son background, the, the son is gone and he's in sin and the father doesn't know where he is. And yet he doesn't give up on his son. Night and day he prays for his son. His heart is turned over within him. G. Campbell Morgan in his commentary on Hosea writes about a story in Scotland of a young lady who left her mother, her mother was a widow. She left her mother and went away, lived a sinless, sinful lifestyle in the city. Her mother didn't hear from her for 10 whole years, not one word. She didn't know if she was alive or what. For 10 years, she never heard. One day, the girl gave up the lifestyle that she was living, realized it was ridiculous, that her life was destroyed. She said, I can go home like the prodigal son. I will go home. And so she goes home. She goes home at night because she didn't know how her mother might receive her. And as she goes home at night, she walks down the lane to the little cottage there in Scotland, and she sees a light burning in, in the house, and it worries her. Perhaps her mother is not well. Maybe she's gone. She comes to the door and tries the latch, and, and the door's unlocked. And she walks in the little cottage, and a voice from upstairs, the mother says this, Is that you, Janet? And she says, Yes, mother, it's me. I was worried. The light was on, a light was on. The door is unlocked. And the mother said this, Janet, since the day you left, that light has been on and that door has been open for you. I think that's the heart of God here. From the day they left, the heart of God has yearned for them and called them to himself and has loved them. In verse 9, it says this, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One of their midst. I will not come in wrath. Verse 11. Oh, oh, verse, now go down to verses 10 and 11. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. And they'll come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. The Lord holds out great hope for his children as he calls them back to himself. All this story, this picture we've seen, the picture of a loving God, a great healer, one who, who goes after his people to deliver them, the, the picture of a sinful people that have spurned the, the, the joys of the Lord and the, and the gifts of the Lord and everything the Lord has to offer them, they spurned it over their centuries. And now we have a picture of God who is calling them to himself, and we've seen the heart of God. What's next? 
Well, the great book of Hosea ends with an invitation. So I want you to go back to chapter 14 and in verse 8. Here's their invitation, 8 and 9. He says in verse 8, O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like a luxurious, luxuriant cypress. For me comes your fruit. The Lord says, I am the one who is, is responsible for all that you have. I have given you your fruit. What do you need to do now? Where are you at with this? He's calling them to himself. Will they come home? The poet has said, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with an empty cup, uncertain and asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I'd known you better, I would, I would have come running with a bucket. That's the picture we have here. Coming to the, for the blessings and the love of God with a bucket. Verse 9 closes with the invitation. Here it is. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Here is God's invitation, folks. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, He is saying you are living a life of insanity. The reality is how the Lord has set up His universe. To not come to Him, to not bow before Him, to not place your faith in Him for the forgiveness of sin that He offers is pure insanity. Because if God exists, there is no other reality. It's only his reality. And so he calls us to himself. And he says, look, if you're wise, you will come. You'll come from my righteousness, not your righteousness. And I will, like a a, a luxurious tree, give you the abundance that comes from me. If you're a Christian, he says the same thing. Why live half-heartedly? Why live like that pancake half-turned? Why not live totally, completely for the one who loves you and created you? Never, never miss the heart of God in a passage like this. His love for us is beyond any measure that we can imagine. So Hosea not only shows us the splendor of God, but also the heart of God. And he deals as he deals with a stubborn and rebellious people. But even to the most stubborn, even the most rebellious The invitation is the same. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. In wisdom, we come to him. The only one that we should be living for, that we possibly can be living for. We have two choices, folks, really, really, if you think about it. We have the choice of wisdom. We have the choice of insanity. I hope you want to choose wisdom. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now for your wonderful truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for loving us so deeply when we don't deserve it, even when we are sometimes in rebellion, and perhaps some in this room are in total defiance. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us anyway. And I pray, Father, for any here that need your love this today, that need, that need Christ, that this might be the day they would come to you. And for any Christian, Lord, who kind of playing around half-heartedly with you, half-dedicated, half-not, May they see that that is nothing at all, but that's uselessness. May they turn their hearts to you fully today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.